0: contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, and on today's episode of the Afternoon Light podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Darius von Gutner, who is a Principal Research Fellow with the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. He is also a historian of East Central Europe, and today we are talking about the history of the Ukraine. So welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast, Darius.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: Oh, it's great to have you here and in person. I am really enjoying being back to in-person podcasting and not Zoom podcasting. And um, you know it makes things uh, a lot more natural, I think. But look, we are going to talk about the history of a country that is facing uh, an enormously challenging time and uh, I think it is so important when we're faced with crises like this to understand the context and the history and I'd love you to start our discussion today by talking to us about where this sort of sense of Ukrainian national identity has originated from.
1: I think this is a very good starting point, because uh, I think it's a contested issue at the moment. The media and a lot of commentators are bringing forward, um, essentially using what President Putin recently said, that Ukraine is not a real country, that Ukrainians are such a close kin to Russians, that in fact they are just a subsection of their population. I think it's there are a couple of ways of looking at Ukrainian identity. Uh, they are clearly uh, people that have history. All people have history. And they see themselves distinct to and from uh, the neighbors. Um, they, throughout uh, for, for centuries, and we can even say, oh, well, last thousand years, they were either independent or part of a bigger composite states of Europe being part of the Russian cultural, political, and economic domain is relatively recent for Ukraine. We can, we can pinpoint the conversion to Christianity of Kiev, uh, for example, so that's over a thousand years ago. We can then look at um, emergence of Cossack identity, uh, which I think uh, Russians at the moment are, are looking at as being their Ukrainian and uh, really Ukrainian identity as such. But we are, talking, uh, we are talking here about this identity that develops over quite a long period of time in the borderlands of what was East and West. They are culturally influenced by growing power of Poland, Lithuania, so one of the largest countries in, in Europe uh, until 1795, and the uh, movement of Russia into Europe. So Uk- Ukraine is born really between East and West, and it's heavily influenced by his past that, that Christianity, acceptance of Christianity from Byzantium, from Constantinople, that, that shapes an alphabet, um, that it shapes, uh, shapes uh, the religious affinity with Eastern uh, uh, Christianity. It also shapes a perception of being the first in the East to accept that religion and then to uh, expose other uh, nations around to that. So I think this is, this is the long Identity. But if you think about modern time, uh, perhaps uh, we can look into the rivalry between Poland and Lithuania with Moscovy and later with Russia. This is where Ukrainians are trying to find their own place to be. And they they remind themselves about that baptism of uh, of Rus in, in a thousand years ago. But they also look at this being a bargaining chip between kings of Poland and the Grand Dukes of Lithuania and Russia. And so it is a contested identity that then emerges perhaps in the nineteenth century into being as a separate, independent, as culturally viable, as reaching out to the past and choosing what they want to be and then shaping it in a literary sense, in a cultural sense, through folk expression, through growth of their own university studies, and then in a very sharp contrast to the Poles, so very Latin Christianity and the West, and sharp contrast to Russians, the Eastern Moscovy version of what statehood and literary advance and education should be. So Ukrainian, I think 19th century is this growth of um, similar processes we experience across Europe. Um, It's nothing new, but they are divided. They are divided between Austria, uh, between uh, Russia and and I think on the Austrian side, uh, they're able to look into this freedom, the, the the idea that Ukraine can exist in its own right.
0: And Ukraine, the the word, the name, it, it means borderlands, doesn't it? Is that right?
1: I think this is uh, the, in English. That sounds quite uh, quite good, borderlands. Yeah, yeah. But it's almost like it is a country at the edge, right? Because yes. it, it is. Um, the cry seem to indicate uh, indicate a land or a state or a country or a place or an edge of a table, so you can you, you can think so many different meanings. When you look from the west, this was the end of Europe. Yes. If you look from the east, from the Moscow side, that was the beginning of Europe. And and I think this is quite important. I think in in looking at Ukraine, mm. that they are defined by borderlands, but they have the right to decide where they belong. And we cannot talk about them as that bargaining place between West and East. I think they have the right to choose.
0: Well, indeed, indeed. And that's one of the key principles in the United Nations Charter, isn't it? Uh, you, You talk about Christianity as being quite a key part of Ukrainian national identity. Can you tell me how that Christianity is underpinning the political identity of of Ukraine in in its region?
1: It is quite a complex, I think, question because when uh, Viking traders originally settled in Kiev, uh, when they established a trading post... Uh, when they established a, a that, that you would say the patriarchal feudal monarchy there, and then in the tenth century, when uh, their ruler uh, chooses uh, Eastern orthodoxy because uh, um, and a story i guess it stories it 's one of those uh, um, uh, stories repeated um, that he um, examined the religion of the Jews and he thought, well, he couldn't really have that religion because he wants to eat pork. All oh, right. Um, he, he, he examined Only <laughs>
0: practical r- reasons. They're not very spiritual. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I think that, um, that gives us an um, insight about uh, uh, political, that uh, a thousand years ago, our political leaders were not any different than our political leaders today, mm. that in fact a lot of choices were deliberate choices yeah. based on examination of you know, what is in it for me. So he looked into um, Islam and uh, prohibition of drinking wine. Was well, and something pork
0: too. Yeah. Exactly.
1: <laughs> then he looked at uh, Latin, uh, Latin Christianity coming from Rome and uh, or from Poland and uh, he thought, well, this is not just really uh, my cup of tea. He looked at the Eastern Orthodox service. And he was uh, absolutely taken by the liturgy, uh, by the splendor of celebration of mysteries of that faith. And so he reached out for that religion. He decided to get baptized, accepting missionaries from Constantinople and marrying a, um, a daughter of the imperial house of Byzantium. So that that was that's that's how Christianity comes into. Its own existence within that ancient Ukraine a thousand years ago, but of course, this is just a story. It's uh, a good
0: one, though. <laughs> I, I
1: think it's, but it's worth reminding us that uh, every nation has that kind of a, the origin myth. Mm. That every nation needs some sort of a seed to to which uh, kindergarten kids can refer to, to which all the people can talk about, and uh, that becomes a part of a of almost a giggle too. You know, deliberate choice. Or is it a spiritual conversion? Uh, Historians will debate forever, I'm I'm sure. Mm. But Christianity then, uh, when it's um, embedded within the royal court and um, uh, royal family, it then seems to bring attention of the uh, local elites. And their conversion brings uh, population within the reach of Eastern uh, Christianity. We have then um, years of uh, almost natural growth, of that missionary activity, uh, more and more people coming into contact with Christianity. But what is important, that at the very beginning of that um, conversion process of a thousand years ago, um, the Patriarch of Constantinople, the leader of Eastern Orthodox Church, recognises Kiev as being the um, site of authority for Eastern Christians. Um, And it's brilliant in a way that early uh, Kiev gets um, to be recognized as a metropolitan sea. Now, it expands, of course. Um, there is, uh, for various reasons, there's a Mongolian raid, for example, so the hordes of Genghis Khan are destroying ancient uh, Rus. Um, they, they get as far as Hungary and Poland. That religious uh, identity is uh, clearly shaped by that invasion, so Christians stick to Christianity, and they do not abandon it. Later, Moscow claims the authority of the over-Eastern orthodoxy by the virtue of uh, the Archbishop, if we can use that term, or Patriarch, residing in Moscow. And so there is this, um, a political dimension of this, of course. For the rulers of, of Grand Dukes of Moscovy, um, it was a political ace card, you would say. We have the authority over Christian world in the East. What happens then when Ukraine is divided between Poland, Lithuania, and Russia, is that we have some of the population... Uh, sticking very much to the Orthodox Christianity, and we have some of the population that breaks away from the Eastern Patriarchate of Moscow and join Roman Catholic Church, yeah. recognizing authority of the of the Pope. And I guess here we've got this, um, uh, you would say, contested Christian identity. Am I belonging to the East? Or am I belonging to the West? Uh, for of course, for Rome, for Roman Catholics, that was an enormous uh, success in bringing that Eastern Church into the arms of the Western Church, I think it is quite important to recognize that that dimension and that, that bridge perhaps still exists and to a large degree defines certain families and their perception of where they belong. In the Western part of Ukraine, there's quite a large population of adherents to, to that um, Eastern Church of the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, in the East, we have quite strong adherence to the Russian Orthodoxy. But uh, what happened when Ukraine um, became sovereign after the, 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 the dissolution of the uh, Soviet Union, we have an emergence of the national Eastern Orthodox Church, which is, um, which is something which is part of the tradition of the Eastern Orthodox Churches, that no person holds authority over all of them, mm. that each of them exists for the population that they serve. And recognition quite recent recognition from the patriarch of Constantinople um, was given to this national church declaring that, that it's sovereign that I think it's, it's called declaration of sovereignty of the church over its population and within its national borders. that I think was a um, quite a defining moment for, for Ukrainians saying that well, we belong to Orthodox Church, but we also are under authority. Of the ecclesiastical authorities that govern us within our country, that was quite an unpopular thing uh, for Moscow. Moscow did not really imagine. want to agree with this.
0: Yeah. yeah. So,
1: so um, in a way, uh, going back to your question, I think the religious dimension of it is important. I think it's perhaps oh, perhaps overstated by Moscow in terms of the affinity of Ukrainians with the Moscow type of church and the, you know the, the patriarch of moscow blessing troops in this in this invasion is, is perhaps the most shocking example of it but i think ukrainian identity is perhaps shaped a little bit more by now by this conflict than by the religion of the past it's now the the borders the national borders seem to be defining the group of people that identify themselves as ukrainians
0: yeah, it was pretty shocking as you as you rightly put it to see the patriarch in, in Moscow come out and and basically give imprimatur to this sort of almost like a holy war, although of course they don't call it a, a war in um, in Russia. It's a, a special military operation. But that sort of religious overlay is you know, it's quite confronting to think that the atrocities that are being perpetrated in Ukraine against civilians, against you know, women and children, uh, are are blessed by a religious leader in in Moscow. Is
1: it's perhaps another sign of how religion can be used for political purposes? Yes. Yeah. And, and how religious leaders, especially in the East, especially within the tradition of Eastern Orthodox Church of Moscow, that church supports the state leadership um, in a very strong way. That, yeah. that happened during the Tsars, the, the, um, the, the rule of the Romanov dynasty, and it still seemed to be continuing in the restoration of, of Russian, um, uh, Russian identity, Russian church, uh, after the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union.
0: I wanted to, and this is not an easy question, I appreciate, but I wanted to ask you why it is that Eastern Europe has been so prone to redrawing of boundaries and territorial expansion and invasion. Why is it always, you know, even in 2022, we are witnessing it in a state of flux? these borders that you would think would be just respected, countries' sovereignty left alone and respected, are not in this part of the world.
1: So there are, there are perhaps two, two issues in here that we have in, in, I guess, in Australia, in the Western world, in English-speaking world, we have this perception that Eastern Europe, that those borders shifted so much and they were so... Um, uh, so and, and so frequently that people shifted, people allegiances shifted. But if you look at the borders of France... If you look at the borders of Italy, you look at Germany is another perfect example, or even Spain and Portugal. Every country in Europe, perhaps given to, to, to overpopulation of the continent, maybe. I'm, I'm joking, a little bit overpopulation, inverted commas. Eastern Europe is essentially product, in our understanding of it today, it's a product of the 20th century. And I think we suffer from that Cold War division, and we suffer from the Iron Curtain mentality too. East of it was the Eastern Bloc domain of the Soviet Union. West, it's us. It's a comfortable winner where we stand, mm. and I think majority of the history that we look at from perspective of today is mm. really influenced by that perception. But if we just look into into detail, it is perhaps uh, perhaps my own opinion, really, and a number of other uh, researchers would perhaps agree. Others would challenge us that. We've seen a movement of Moscow into Europe. Moscow's first point of, um, uh, of the policy since the 16th century was destruction of Poland and Lithuania in order to get in Europe. Mm. Progressively, um, if we think about the borders of Poland and Lithuania, included Smolensk, so not far away from Moscow, included territories, including the whole of the Ukraine and more, a majority of the Baltic states. So we have that uh, conglomerate that existed um, uh, as uh, one joint country between Poland and Lithuania for, for quite some time, but Moscow progressively uh, destroyed the, that grand duchy of Lithuania, and carving up of Ukraine in the 17th century is a result of that, is a result of uh, that uh, military advance into Europe. I mean, Catherine the Great uh, receives the, uh, the, the accolades, the Great, but she's a German... Born uh, a woman who was a brilliant strategist who was clearly a brilliant administrator and a politician, but she essentially makes Russia destroy Poland and Lithuania, mm. conquer whole of the Ukraine and incorporate it into her state. It is, it is the final step which, uh, in which Moscow achieves movement into Central Europe with a boundary to Germany, with boundary to Austria. So this is perhaps the most dramatic border change. But again, if you look at it, the population is not shifted. The population stays there. The, the acquisition by Germany of the ports along the Baltics, that essentially is, uh, is justified by uh, German rhetoric of moving east. So Moscow is moving west, Germany is moving east, they meet at Vistula River, and and this is the middle of Poland. Um, It is an interesting situation that those border shifts in the 20th century, where we have restoration of Polish borders into the borders that they had in the 10th century, that we have a creation of Ukrainian Republic within Soviet Union and Belarus as well, and Lithuania. It is an interesting way of redrawing the map that uh, no one thought possible, and only dictatorial regime of Joseph Stalin could do it. The shift of, uh, and essentially saying to people, look, we're going to shift twenty million of people from here to there. We're going to shift the whole Polish university from Lviv into um, uh, Wrocław or Breslau in in former uh, German Silesian provinces. I think if we really look at the border changes, I don't think we're going to see such a dramatic shift. But if we see of how it was sold to us in the twentieth century, how the drawing of the map and then solidific- solidification or um, Uh, cementing of the Eastern Bloc, that gives us this perception of the constant flux. The recent, the most recent um, uh, adventure, uh, invasion of Ukraine, adventure of Moscow, and is justified in historical terms too. Uh, Clearly, Moscow is, um, again, playing with our mind here, uh, saying that this is really artificial border. Um, This is something that the Tsar's and the General Secretaries of the Communist Party created. The Ukraine is artificial creation that never existed before.
0: Yeah, I think Putin puts it as Ukraine is a fictitious state that doesn't deserve its sovereignty, just made up. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it is, it Presumably
0: is. the Ukrainian people have quite a different idea. But,
1: yeah. And, and, and in- interesting on television, on, on Russian television, there they are shows where they show possible maps of redrawing the borders, um, suggesting to Poland that there should be another um, uh, dismembering of Ukrainian territory. Some can be given to Romania, some can be given to Poland, Russia will take part, and Ukraine will just be left with a little rump thing in the middle around Kiev. Mm. I think we need to be very careful about this narrative, and we need to recognize that even if um, uh, within the old monarchies, old empires, the borders were redrawn, they were not national borders, in a sense of what we understand today, uh, as a nation, a group of people joined either by language, culture, or belonging to a certain authority. Um, Those old monarchies were bound by dynastic ties, by force of arms uh, and by negotiation with another monarch across the border.
0: So I guess your point is that you don't see populations moving particularly or mixing so much. The Ukrainian people remain, for example, in the, the area largely um, that is Ukraine today. But that with military invasions and expansion, we we see militaries move or or sort of political political ties expand. But the people who identify as Ukrainian or Polish or Lithuanian, they remain in situ. I wanted, Darius, to ask you about the, how the Bolshevik Revolution impacted Russia's territorial ambitions and sense of, of, of its uh, <laughs> borders.
1: I think this is the first point of confusion, really, the Bolshevik Revolution. Right. Because what we, what we see during World War I, uh, World War I is essentially destabilising Russian Empire in a similar way, it will destroy Austria-Hungary and it will destroy Germany. But what happens with the Russian Revolution, one of the key proclamations by uh, Lenin is freedom of nationalities to choose their own, self-determination essentially. Mm. And that decrees early on promulgated. I think just after the Bolshevik coup in October 1917, which means that uh, those uh, nations that uh, formed the Russian Empire are now feeling that they suddenly have more rights to claim national identity and freedom and declare independence. It takes about a year for Poland to do it, Poland does it on 11th of November, 1918. Uh, It takes a little bit for Ukraine to essentially do the same, proclaim an existence of national republic. For Finland as well, Finland declares a break away from the Russian Empire and its own self-determination, their own new new form of government. Bolsheviks are strange at the beginning because they allow this to happen. Mm. But we see very early on within the Bolshevik regime uh, contradictions, contradictions that are from the populist policies of Lenin, he wants to keep the power in the hands of his political party after a successful coup. He also wants to get um, his population on board. But some of his colleagues are already displaying this nationalistic Russian trait. So international is fair and good when we are winning, but can we let Poland go? Can we let Ukraine go? Um, Can we let Finland go or Baltic states? So very early on in 1918, we have uh, Russian internal politics determining this kind of concessions to those countries. Poland essentially is declaring independence at in, in 1918, and then in 1919 and 1920 moves totally away, including that we have the war between this, uh, the Bolshevik government and, and the Poles, which involves Russian, um, a Russian invasion, you would say Russian or the Bolshevik invasion of Ukraine and destruction of Ukrainian Republic. And I think this is, this is another point. Ukrainians at that time, at the same time as the Poles, they see their own path for the future, pave through through the self-determination. Mm. They bring together the lands of what they see Ukraine should be, and they say, look, um, to Bolsheviks, we choose our own path. And, and at this point, Bolsheviks start behaving more um, like Russians and less uh, uh, like an international movement that wanted to achieve um, uh, the global happiness for everyone, the, the utopian paradise on earth, so um, I think Bolsheviks started the seeds. They, they essentially, they demonstrate to us that um, Bolshevik Party, the communists, were never able to shake off the Russian tendency to holding or keeping the land grabs of the past.
0: No, and and then in the 1930s, of course, you have the, the great famine where 13%, I understand, of the Ukrainian population dies um, through the oppression of the Russians uh, and and real sort of genocide takes place so that that obviously is part of that sense of you know Ukrainian independence from their oppressors uh, that sets up then what happens in World War two and how that has impacted the discussions we have today can you can you explain that a bit more Darius
1: Ukraine famine is um, an extremely uh, dramatic event for the population mm. of Ukraine. It's also a, again, demonstration of, uh, uh, you would say, of a, a Russian determination to keep Ukraine within the fold of its of its empire. At the same time, at the same time, is used as a as a, a food production area, from where the Bolshevik authorities can strip all food available to, to local population. It, it is it is essentially a premeditated, it is a policy of state that results in genocide. And the scale is staggering. I mean, we're talking about population of Victoria dying within um, a couple of years because all the food was taken away to prop up the communist regime on international markets. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what happens. The The grain that is taken from Ukrainians is then used to um, prop um, industrialization of the Soviet Union to, to create this new miracle um, out of nothing. Um, is There's a good question here. Is it deliberate policy addressed against Ukrainians at the time? Is this a policy that is building on the communist ideals? Is it simply Russian imperialism towards people that they called little Russians. And I think there, are, uh, there is a mixture of all of this in uh, what, ha- what happens. Uh, Stalin is deliberate in uh, his choice of Ukrainian food basket for this. Um, he's also showing total disregard for human life. Mm. And perhaps it is worth remembering that in that great Moscovy tradition, it is the state... It is the benefit of the whole. It is the existence of the rulers. Um, but individuals are somehow forgotten in it. No, and the no. impact, impact on Ukraine is we have estimates of between 7 to 11 million people dying, starving to death. And uh, the story quite recently uh, shown to us in a film by um, Mr. Johns, the story of Gareth Johns, a British or Welsh Uh, journalist who travels to the Soviet Union. This is a film by Agnieszka Holland who um, uh, gives us the insight into how uh, Bolshevik or how communist regime uh, in Moscow manipulated the situation and how uh, people on the ground um, were forced to to eat their own flesh, the the flesh of the family members to survive.
0: Yes, Awful. Um, Darius, Moving to World War Two, and this has real links to, of course, the rhetoric that Putin is using um, about Ukraine being a Nazi country uh, with a Nazi administration, um, and his his special military operation into Ukraine is part of denazification of of Ukraine. Uh, the the Ukrainian um, sense of sort of national identity and independence is is. Is challenged during World War Two, and uh, uh, in 1941, when the Nazis do invade um, Ukraine, a lot of Ukrainian nationalists do collaborate with the Nazis, and and of course, Ukraine itself becomes the site of um, the deaths of 25 percent of the Jewish population who were murdered during World War Two. So there's there's a, you know there is a sense that. This is where a lot of Jews do die. Uh, there's a massacre at um, Babanyar which has come to to um, prominence very recently because there's been another another atrocity committed there. Uh, can you can you tell me about this very difficult period of history and, of course, the the impact that it still has today in the rhetoric of Putin and and the and that. Um, complexities of Ukrainian national identity too.
1: I think we need to step, uh, step back a little bit. We need to step back to the 1st of September 1939, to the German invasion of Poland. In August, Nazi Germany and Soviet Union sign a friendship treaty in which... And we've got, uh, uh, we've got uh, uh, lovely maps with, uh, and, uh, and uh, decisions made at a secret agreement that they decided that they will divide Poland. Now, when, when we use the word Poland here, um, post-1918, we've got Poland that includes uh, quite a large population of Ukrainian people, quite a large population of Belarus um, and Lithuanians. So it is a very multi-ethnic, multi-religious country at the time. When Germans invade on the 1st of September, they invoke this friendship treaty with Moscow. Moscow invades Poland on the 17th of September 1939. And here we've got the first rhetoric of, um, of Moscow saying we're doing it. We're sending our 600,000 troops into Poland to reunite the Belarus and reunite Ukraine um, with the sister Soviet republics within, uh, within our country. This is the first, and and at that time, uh, Molotov, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, uses the word that this bastard of Versailles Treaty ceases to exist. He talks about independent, free Poland. So this is a, a rhetoric that we heard from President Putin as well. We are reuniting, mm-hmm. we are bringing, there was something not real, this country is fictitious, it didn't exist. We have this repeated to us again. What happens, of course, the, that the Western Ukraine and Eastern Ukraine are then joined in the Soviet Union, and this is the first redrawing of the map of, of what modern Ukraine um, really have um, today. And what happens of course, um, Jewish population of that region enjoyed enormous freedom under the um, Polish-Lithuanian monarchy. Um, That was perhaps why the majority of Jewish population in Europe concentrated in that realm, because they were given self-government, they ruled themselves, they were able to trade, uh, they were able to flourish the way they wanted to. So when Nazis, clearly because of their ideological push to exterminate Jewish people, invade Soviet Union in 1941, the East opens the next stage of Holocaust, it opens enormous, vast expanse that are not visible to anyone else. Those atrocities um, uh, that um, we know of today uh, are murders on enormous scale. We're talking Mm -hmm. about thousands, and in the end millions of people, murdered by the Nazi regime when they enter Soviet Union. And it happens progressively. It's orchestrated. It's mechanised killing. It It is premeditated genocide. For Ukrainians and Ukrainian nationals at the time and perhaps the, um, those people that wanted to see Ukraine independence, um, Nazi invasion is perhaps seen in terms of we're finally free of the Soviets, we're finally free of the Russians. So um, that period of, um, as you said, collaboration, that period of, it's perhaps representation of uh, that push Uh, That they want to be by themselves, that they want to, and and that's what seems to be Germany was promising, existence of an independent Ukrainian state um, at those borderlands. Um, Perhaps uh, German vision was for a buffer state between Germany and Soviet Union, uh, or Russia, as it would be after German invasion. Um, It is a pretty complex area. Um, The atrocities committed on the ground are just uh, – it's all extremely shocking. And this is perhaps another division that um, – between those different categories of ethnic, uh, ethnic groups and different linguistic traditions. We have Ukrainians that would like to be by themselves, on their own, in their own country, but again they are pushed between two powers, two superpowers, fighting for dominance of the region. I guess uh, there are no simple ways of describing the situation. Really, it is pretty complex. And perhaps uh, Soviets later on will use those um, disagreements between Ukrainians and Poles, for example, about the borders and about different settlements of different villages and cities. Um, Soviets will manipulate it and use it to essentially do the policy of divide and conquer.
0: Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's interesting that, I mean... The sense of of wanting to um, be separate and reject um, Russia as an influence in in Ukrainian society is 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 incredibly recent too. With in twenty fifteen in Ukraine, the um, uh, legislation was passed to basically rid communist um, sta- affiliated statues and monuments um, throughout Ukraine and and replace them with. With ones that were about Ukrainian nationalism and that national identity, but that comes with it with the with the overlay of of the collaboration of Ukrainian nationalists during the World War II and and those and those sort of tensions, doesn't it?
1: Yes, yes, and this is perhaps why Moscow is able to use the fascist rhetoric, talking about Nazis in Ukraine. This, this language has been used before in Russian uh, or Soviet propaganda. It has been used against uh, conservative forces, for example, for the um, Polish government in exile, for the Lithuanian, uh, Lithuanians that were uh, opposing in doctrine, Soviet indoctrination, and similarly in Ukraine as well. Everything that was not fitting the, um, the mode of what the, uh, Moscow wanted to achieve has been labeled as fascist but even that happened to Winston Churchill, that this famous cartoon where in a shadow of Winston Churchill, who is delivering a speech, stands Hitler and Goebbels. And a Russian, Russian uh, letters, uh, the, the caption reads uh, that you know he's raving mad, but he's doing it as Goebbels taught him. Similar words were used um, for... Um, uh, for the Polish government or Polish opposition of, of, of uh, introduction of communism in Poland. And similar uh, strategies were used in Ukraine as well because that was how they branded those people that were non They didn't want to accept the communist rule over the country. Today, it is, the pretext is really the linguistic policies of those countries. Similar situation we have in Estonia where there's quite a large population of Russian speakers but this is really an outcome of uh, the Soviet policy of, of essentially uh, repopulation of certain countries or uh, assisted migration, you would say, settlement of certain people there. In Ukraine, it is a very long, um, a long-lasting, uh, I guess, result of the policies of Catherine the Great, mm. of bringing a, a population that was ethnically Russian or Russian-speaking and promotion of that language as the official language. I mean, Soviet Union and, and Russia did not like the fact that Ukrainians have their own alphabet, that, yes, it is Cyrillic alphabet, but with certain modification, uh, that, uh, that um, are able to express um, their own ideas in their own way that are not always seen from the perspective of Moscow. But I think the label fascist is used as branding Mm. Activity of those that do not conform to our wishes. It's also a reminder of that uh, those nations that broke away from Soviet Union and from um, uh, from uh, Russia, they want to have their own national story told. The statues, and I think I've read reports that yesterday or a couple of days ago, um, there are statues of uh, Soviet soldiers in Poland being removed as well. Uh, they're similar uh, similar to what happened in Ukraine that those statues, as much as they symbolized the um, uh, liberation from Germans in 1944-1945, they later uh, symbolized the domination of Soviet Union over those national stories of those people. So, um, on one hand, uh, we can see that uh, uh, every nation would like to to keep their own national story sacred and, and, and pure, and it is not surprising that Ukrainians uh, reached out to destroy those symbols of oppression because they no longer represented that core idea of liberation. Mm-hmm. They were anti-liberation. They reminded them that from 1940s until 1990s the Soviet Union and Moscow dominated them and in, in all spheres, economic, political and cultural. Um, it is almost like the movement... Uh, like a movement that we've seen also in the West, where yes. certain statues are being branded and and are no longer valid. Um, but perhaps the issue in Ukraine is and in the Eastern Bloc is far deeper than that. They symbolise liberation uh, for a time, then symbolise oppression mm. and... Uh, they're no longer compatible with the, with with the facts on the ground the people are sovereign the people are independent
0: yeah and of course this movement in ukraine the most recent one came just after the annexation of crimea by by russia so there would have been heightened very very much heightened sensitivities around those statues and memorials to uh, uh, <laughs> to a to a country that that now is intent on on Basically, taking away Ukrainian sovereignty, um, but the but the removal of statues is, I mean, it's an incredibly vexed debate because it's it's partly whitewashing history. I mean, we've in in Australian or um, British U.S. context, you've you've got to question whether removing those statues um, removes an opportunity to have a debate about our history. In the Ukrainian context, I can see there's. Um, there's a there's a real imperative to assert one's national identity in the face of of very very serious um, attacks on it
1: and and we do see it, uh, perhaps why it comes in such a stark contrast to to what we see here in 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 the western in the in the western, uh, uh, western english speaking world um, that yes asserting the own being and in a military conflict I mean, we see that in a military conflict, a lot of things happened that are perhaps driven by emotions as well. Although, what is quite interesting is that um, the same thing happened in Russia, in Moscow. I mean, Moscow um, took majority of those Soviet era monuments and placed it in one little park that is in, in one of the Moscow suburbs. I've seen this. Right. Um, it is it is a, a most um, interesting and bizarre exhibit of post-Soviet uh, uh, or Soviet kind of glorification of Lenin and communism that is essentially housed in several hectares of land uh, as a kind of, a, a kind of reminder of what happened. But they are no longer monuments in the middle of Moscow um, that are glorifying communism. So I guess each country is doing it in their own little way, yes. uh, reconciliation with the past. Um, I think for Russians perhaps, and we need to remember this, for, for Russians, um, that national myth of the Great Patriotic War, of over 20 million people dying in defeating Nazis, mm. that narrative will always find a very fertile ground among a population of Russian Federation. The staggering number. I mean, population of Australia today died in defeating Nazis. Of course, we're not quite sure exactly about the statistics. They've never been independently verified, but nonetheless... Putin is using words that are familiar to Russians. Putin is using words that resonate. Putin is using words that are strong words. And on the face of it, um, the president of a of a superpower making those kind of claims mm-hmm. this is this is opening another another challenge, I guess, for us. Yes. Uh, what is the part of the propaganda? What is this nationalistic vision of the world? Um, is it his? Is it national myth? Uh, does it belong in the public domain as strongly as some people seem to suggest, or is it simply, you know, simply uh, like with of speech on the seventeenth of uh, September, sub- nineteen thirty nine, Is it another raving of a madman? Because some of the Eastern um, Eastern uh, European media in in uh, Czech Republic, in, in maybe not in Hungary as such, but Czech Republic, Romania, Poland, Lithuania, especially in Estonia and Latvia, there are voices. Uh, that headlines speaking about president putin in terms of he's a raving mad lunatic mm. that the 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 stuff that he's publicly uh, using his speeches he's treated as, as someone who just recently uh, escaped from an asylum.
0: Well, you see that in in Western media as well, that, you know, Putin is isolated. He's been isolating by by himself for two years, sits at the table with someone and they're about 30 metres away. He's going mad in his isolation. But But look, Darius, this has been a really fascinating discussion and I think illuminates so much for us the history of Ukraine, but also how that provides context to what is going on at the moment and why russia is pitching its messages and and actions in the way it is and of course the context of ukrainian nationalism and national identity and and of course the religious overtones as well so thank you so much for for your time today thank you very much the afternoon life podcast is brought to you by the robert menzies institute at the university of melbourne You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.